Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Born in New York City in 1940, the writer and artist Richard Castellanitz has published more than 50 books of criticism, cultural history, and creative work, in addition to editing over three dozen anthologies. Relentlessly experimental and productive, Castellanitz is a force of one in the New York City avant-garde scene, creating visual poetry, audio tapographies, foreshortenings, kinetic writings, and works in dozens of other obscure, fascinating, and sometimes self-created genres. His more conventional works include a 700-page Dictionary of the Avant-Gardes, an intimate history of the Soho, New York art scene, and rich anthologies by or about John Cage, E.E. E. Cummings, Philip Glass, Virgil Thompson, and other writers and composers. Castellanitz has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the Pulitzer Foundation, and others. Dubbed the Bibliomaniac of Ridgewood by the New York Times, Castellanitz lives in a converted factory building in Queens that he calls Wordship, surrounded by over 25,000 books, hundreds of videotapes, and his own artwork. He opens a section of his home as a bookshop on the last Sunday of each month. At the beginning of our interview, Castellanitz continues an earlier train of thought about an artist who interests him. He also speaks to his assistant, Andrew Morinelli, at several points in our conversation. Can, can I talk? Yep. So, One of the more so, interesting correspondences I had recently with, with a novelist named Lucy Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S-S. She's published some fiction with commercial publishing, and not unlike most other writers who publish with commercial publishing, they get dropped. And she was dropped. Um, but she has a, a, an uncle named Hugh Ferris, H-U-G-H, I never pronounced the word correctly, who did the most extraordinary collection of architectural drawings. They're legendary. Dover republished them as books. They're published as books and then republished as books. Architecture students don't know them. And okay. I told them I wanted to publish, I was interested in these as fictions. And she didn't get it. That they were, they were imaginary worlds um, which, in which buildings, he imagined buildings and worlds within the imaginary buildings. That to me is a fiction. And she simply didn't get it. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Enough of that. I see that Martin Vaughn James, who was a great visual fiction writer, is finally being reprinted in the U.S. by a New York Review of Books books. Um, so Listen, I wanted to... The, the, the visual fiction, and visual stories interest me enormously. Obviously, the common form is comic books. But it's also possible to tell a visual story entirely with pictures, and pictures without words, of which the great historical example was Maesreel, M-A-S-E-R-E-A-R-E-E-L, a Belgian writer who had his, who had some influence in America through Lind Ward, L-Y-N-D, Ward, and some other other visual fictioners as well. Do you, um, I mean, do you have any anybody in your past or your childhood who you felt was a storyteller or? 
stories that influenced you? That's an interesting. That's an interesting question that I haven't really thought about. You know, often when you do this, somebody has an answer he's already given before, and then he then you ask a question for an answer he hasn't given before. Um, so this one I have to think about for a moment. I was not much of a fiction reader as much as a history reader for much of my life. Although the question is whether histories or stories as well is is in, interesting. Um, uh -huh. Uh, somehow the story I remember best from high school when I was not much of a reader in high school, but unlike what I became at, in college, was Jean-Paul Sartre's The Wall. And I'm not quite sure why I remember that one so well, but I certainly do. Was there anyone in your family or around you who was a storyteller you felt? Or that I influenced suppose, you? I suppose my grandfather's uh, second brother, but I only saw him once a year in the 50s. No, I did not grow up among storytellers to my recollection. I certainly remember liking Gene Shepard a lot uh, <laughs> when, I, when I was growing up in the, in the 50s. I'm, in, I'm 81 years old now, I better tell you. So right. therefore, I, I remember 50s radio. And Gene Shepard was, was certainly someone I listened to a lot. He was a great storyteller. Uh -huh. As for fiction, 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 um, I'm not quite sure. I was there also, I grew up in, in, in one of these suburban neighborhoods where everything was zoned out. So I never went to movies. You couldn't get to movies. It was too hard to get to. And I remember when Elizabeth Taylor died, I had to tell everybody, I don't think I ever saw an Elizabeth Taylor movie in my life. I have no idea what she looks like. <laughs> sort of vaguely what she looks like, but I, it, it's, it, it was not part of my experience of going to Hollywood movies. And even then I don't go to Hollywood movies nowadays. So you know, that so kind of story doesn't interest me. And I do generally have a problem in following plot. <laughs> you know, and I don't know why that's true, but I, I, I do, and, and it's not gotten better. <laughs> so tell me more about that. What, what does that feel like? What happens when you have to I try and lost. keep track If I'm with somebody, I have to ask, especially in a movie, although I, I don't do that very often, I have to ask them what I missed or what connection I missed. It's, um, it's most peculiar. I, can't, I, I don't understand that one. So how did your interest in words and books evolve? Well, I, I grew up in a house in which there was no lamp next to any chair. <laughs> if that tells you anything, because my mother, my mother, who was a bit of a controller, didn't read. And my <laughs> father would, would work in the city, would, would come would, on weekends, take the New York Times and put it on the floor. Because <laughs> that's the only place he'd get enough light to read it by. Read by. I wish I were joking, but I'm not. <laughs> and I got to college, I started to, started to learn to read and read a lot. And, still read a lot. Uh, but as for story as such, um, I, I'm not turned on, but as I said, I'm very turned on by, by uh, alternative forms of story, and especially visual narrative. That's an, I've tried to do a couple of them myself, maybe not as successfully as others have, but uh, of just pictures that tell a story, I have an abstract narrative of abstract shapes. That was pioneered by Lozitsky, of course, in, in, in the 1920s, so nearly a century ago now. Um, and I, I've never written a novel. I, I've, I don't understand how a novel is written. I gather how you keep track of all those people is beyond my capability, imagination even. <laughs> I've never been close to a novelist either. And yet you've, you've written hundreds of books. Yeah, and hundreds of stories too. I, I remember actually, you know, it's very much interesting minimal stories of single sentence stories where a single sentence would tell, would, would convey a whole story. Uh, I initially began with epiphanies, 
which would be the climax moment, otherwise non-existent stories. And then I realized some of them were complete stories by themselves, completed a fiction. So I had to separate the complete fictions from the, the epiphanies. And then later I started to work with minimal fictions where you could tell a story in one word. And the classic example, of course, is psychiatry. But then you have to put a period after the word psychiatry. That makes it a fiction. Otherwise, it's just not a fiction. It's just a description. Now, psychiatry is obviously a narrative, but it's, it, it, it's in one word. It's a multiple narrative, I suppose. Uh, and uh, anyway, so at one point, I remember comparing notes with Steve Dixon. And he told me how many short stories he published in literary magazines. And I came up with a higher number. But of course, I realized mine had much less words than his did. <laughs> much, much, <laughs> much fewer words than his did. <laughs> Is there something about quantity of, of words that, that interests you? That the economy well, I, or the... I am, interested, I am interested in literary minimalism. I mean, real minimalism. You know, one word, two words, three words. Um, I, I'm working a lot more with recently with, with aphorisms. And I have collections of four-word aphorisms. And which I call quadrograms. I have five word aphorisms I call quintograms. I had six word aphorisms, which I called septograms, but I never realized they're hexagrams. And I have seven, seven's the most interesting word for aphorisms. And I find myself writing a lot of them recently. I didn't allow that, that constraint um, until recently, but seven is really an interesting number. I wonder about seven word stories. I've never tried to do that. And a friend of mine told me that it has to do with the, um, he said iambic pentameter has seven. Now, now that I'm telling you that, I'm not quite sure I understand what he said, but he said seven was an interesting number for traditional poetry. But it's interesting. it's interesting that you think of it as stories, even though you're, you're using very few words to tell them, you're still trying to figure out if they are stories. Well, they, they go from one place to another, or they suggest movement from one place to another. Whereas poetry to me is concentration, image, and effect. Now, obviously, psychiatry goes from one place to another. We agree on that. Right. No, no, nobody has a, a, a single moment in psychiatry. Epiphany, however, does not go from one place to another. But do you think that Let's talk about your interest in words. Like how, how do words relate to stories? Do words have to be in stories to have meaning? Um, well, as I said, traditionally, yes, but I'm interested in, in stories without words. Mm. Um, and I've tried to do it myself. And I think other people do it better. I mentioned Maysville, Martin Vaughn James for two, uh, initially, initially to mind. These are, are Ferris. Ferris tended to use uh, single images. Whereas Vaughn James and um, Milt Gross for another would do series of images. As for words, I mean, words is, is my you know, words is my medium. My house is called Wordship. Right. And, uh, so, uh, but I'm also interested in alternative kinds of literature, which sometimes don't involve words. I'm interested in acoustic fictions as well. I did one. Uh, is it online? No, it, it's basically erotic. It's called Ululations. And huh. it's, uh, it's basically a woman climaxing. And that's definitely it. But, but there's, no, there's no narration. There's no just the sound. And if that tells, doesn't tell you the whole story, I'm not even going to tell you what the story is. I mean, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I meant to do more with that. I haven't. And I probably should. 
but that's an, it was an inter acoustic fiction interests me a lot. What about the idea of the the reader as the storyteller in the sense that the less information you give the reader, the more that they become part of the storytelling? Do you think I that's- suppose that, I mean, suppose that's true with you when you do a minimal fiction, they have to, they're filling in. Right? When I say the word psychiatry, they're, they're obviously filling in. Right. They have to. But um, which is okay. I mean, I, I, that's what one does that. Nothing wrong with that. I think I'm missing your question, though. I'm missing your point. No, it was just an observation. I was wondering if you ever thought about that, or, or if you have as as a reader feel like you're playing a part in the storytelling when you read well, something well, like well, that. Well, the interesting, of course, is when you can see through the narrator. I mean, the classic when I was taught in college was was a Ford, not X Ford's good good soldier, and I've tried to write. I'm pretty sure, but I can't remember the name instantly. A sentences that have that quality, where you could see through the sentence to, mm. another, to another story. And now that I'm telling you that, I wonder if I ever completed that project. I can't remember its name, but it's it's, it's a phenomenon. It's a literary phenomenon that really interests me, mm. and, and it depends upon the reinterpretative capacities of the reader. Uh, I always think of a higher reading as reinterpretation. You can, especially if you can see through something uh -huh. and see what's, what's going on. And who, who are you, the people who, you know, in terms of their use of words or their uh, approach to words really inspired you the most or continue to inspire you? You know, that's probably changed over the years. I always mentioned John Cage, who I think was a great writer. Right. Um, in addition to doing some, some, in addition to working some other arts, um, I just come across things now and then. It's certainly Ramon Gomez de la Serna, the Spanish writer for single sentence stories, which he called Gregarias. They, they verge. His things are interesting because they verge on being aphorisms, but pseudo aphorisms. At the same time, some of them are stories. But he did. He made a, a, a lifetime of, of single sentence. Uh, single sentence uh, things. In uh -huh. um, mind you, I've tried to translate them uh, with some success, but I, they're the, that's Ramon, Ramon Gomez de la Serna, commonly called Ramon among mm. Spanish you know, Spanish readers. Uh, who else? Uh, well, Flaubert's Dictionary is a very interesting text, and I did translate that. It's meant to be a satire in bourgeois language. I think it is some of the time, it isn't some of the time. And that has to do with careful reading. And you wonder, uh, you wonder as you read it, whether, whether Flaubert was joking or not. And that's part of the, that's part of the, part of the great thrill of reading that text. Speaking of which, if I can digress for a second. Sure. Read the Melvin Tolson, do you know about him? No. You also want a black writer who, there's a protagonist of that movie of the black of the black college was the, the, the debate team. Andrew, what's the what's the name of that movie? Finding Forrester. Say again. Are you thinking of Finding Forrester? No, no. Black college with with the debate team that goes against Harvard uh, and has his coach. Uh, what's his name? McFarlane knew it very well. Doesn't doesn't matter. Anyway, Tolson. Tolson wrote this great great epic called the Harlem Gallery. It's written in very in, in traditional English forms, and it's very much about strange people. I think it's funny. 
But let me tell you, I we read most people talking about Tolson. They're not getting the joke. I, I don't know what to say about that. And I was in correspondence with somebody recently about whether Tolson was joking or not, or, or satirical or not. And beginning with form. He starts with being satirical about form. Right. End of digression. No problem. <laughs> Stand by me. Stand by me. Stand by me. That makes sense. That's the name of the movie. Yeah. yeah. I never saw it. <laughs> I thought that was based on a Stephen King story. No, there's two different movies of the same title. Uh, it's two different movies of the same title. My, my, my okay. assistant. He's, he, he's a moviegoer. One of which is this very famous Stephen King book. Story, One of which story. Is, okay. Okay. You're on. You're on you guys agree. I'm out of. The, I'm out of this picture. What can I say? <laughs> Who else? Who else? And I mean, talk to me about Cage because I know he's a passion of yours. Why? Why do you think you clicked with him? Why? Why was he so important to you? Oh, he he understood constraints and he was very funny. Uh, those are the two things that interest me in my own writing to be to, to show constraint and humor. He also was audacious. I guess the three corners I like in my writing are are constraint, audacity, and humor, of which I of which I inherited from John Cage. People get think it was about chance. I never. Chance is not very important in Cage. He, he would emphasize it in talking, partly to deceive people, put people off. But a lot of people got it wrong and emphasized Chance and thought they were learning from Cage. I think they were just just doing nonsense or just trivia. Um, what, what other writers can I think of? So tell me about his audaciousness, or or how does that how did that inspire? On Cage's audaciousness, do you need to begin? <laughs> <laughs> With the silent piece, I mean, come on. But as a writer, uh, the, these texts, which are, which he takes, he takes extracts from other sources, like John's, like Finnegan's Wake or Thoreau, their texts, which I, I've done a little bit of, but not, not as much as he did. Their texts that are his, his, his thoughts on certain things strung together called diary. Those go back to the late 1960s, which I read at the time, anthologized at the time. I still think they're great. Mm. Um, he has some he has some conventional writings that are pretty good too. There's one piece called the Lecture to the Monday Club, something like that. That's just monumental, straight right. humor, monumental straight humor. Um, I think I think about him all the time. Mm. As I said, less as a, a a composer than as a writer. But that's just my my own my own take on him. Some other people have influenced have been influenced by Cage's writing, I suppose. To Dick Higgins for one. I get lost in this chance business, which really dead ends to my, or not, not very interesting. Name, name somebody else. <laughs> James so I'm, curious, I'm curious about your, I'm also curious about your prolific nature. You know, the fact that oh. how many, how many projects do you think you typically have going at any one time? Well, at the moment, there's a lot for, for a certain reason, which I'll share with you for a second. Excuse me, I cough. Um, I think one reason is that I usually can see the end of something when I begin it. Mm. Um, and, I, and I like to get to the end. That's uh, just one, one reason. Secondly, I, I work a lot. I mean, I, do, I work all the time, especially now that I've become crippled and can't leave the house so easily. Mm. And I tend to let things go that maybe not as good as, as other things are, but as long as somebody might like it, that's the theory I have, especially now because I'm into using um, very much into self-publishing through Amazon. Mm. And um, 
and my theory is always uh, put something up if somebody might like it <laughs> and that's that's all and and my understanding of art is somebody if somebody likes something they tell somebody else they tell somebody else tell somebody else advertising tries to tell a lot of people and then if it works it works if it doesn't work back to zero and what was new exciting and, and what i'm really doing now is i developed an on-demand imprint through amazon with my amazon self-publishing where i'm reissuing a lot of classic texts that i think are avant-garde that are not otherwise available uh, or, not, or are available in such expensive editions that i can put them on price on amazon for 10 bucks and somebody will say boy i'm glad this is here for 10 bucks and, and maybe maybe buy it and i cannot i've issued a couple dozen books this all began last summer huh it's very exciting this is your this books is, or other people's books no, other people other people's books I've, I've just put on just today i put on uh, Turgenev's uh, prose poems and people who thought they read Turgenev don't know the prose poems but they're 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 wonderful they they exist they were translated by constant Garnet. i found them on the internet um I'm about to Abraham Lincoln Gillespie, who was one of Transition's great writers. I've also issued, a, I made a, did a certain issue of Transition. I'm looking now at the books that are over here, which we're working on right now, to the left of me. Um, I, I put together uh, William Carlos Williams' early books, all which in public domain, mm. to a seven, seven William Carlos Williams books in one volume. Wow. Um, I, I've reissued the complete magazine of Blast, which is one of the great design, William Lewis's magazine. It's fantastic. Nobody else is doing it. It's wonderful. And, and the idea, I'm sorry, the idea now that I'm in my 80s is to do things that will survive. Mm. And those will survive. Mm. Do you feel like the with this sort of independence in publishing that we're sort of in a golden age of publishing? Or how do you feel that publishing yeah. has, has evolved? As you've seen, well, certainly, I, mean, I mean, my politics are anarchists, and I'm so again, I'm against gatekeepers mm. uh, to begin with. And this is just gets eliminates the gatekeepers. On the other hand, the gatekeepers tend to think they have more power through through salesmen and through advertising, which they do. But books are eventually sold, but especially years afterwards, are sold from mouth to mouth. You know, from one reader recommending to another. Uh, I'm in a, a lot of encyclopedias like uh, Zanfir, I mean, Britannica, uh, literary histories, Merriam-Webster, American writers, things like that, without having the advantages of commercial publishing working for me. Well, how did that happen? Because somebody I don't know likes something a lot, likes something a lot to put it, to put it in, the, in, in these circumstances. And that's who I'm writing for, the people I don't know who might like it a lot. Mm. Making sense? Yeah. And that, that, that's all, that's all self-publishing enables me to get, get this stuff out there. And people find it, we hope, and, and again, tell somebody else and tell somebody else and you know about it. So there. And maybe you're going to tell somebody else through your podcast. Which you, I'll show you later. Okay, okay. Thank you. Do so, you ever think about marketing? Do you ever? No. Do you ever do anything that you would consider to be marketing? Oh, only I have a last Sunday bookstore where I, I greet people and like to show things. Or sometimes I can't find something. The last Sunday bookstore is on, it, it's on Facebook. It's on, I, I live next to the Halsey Tree Stop on the L train in New York City. And I, I'm there last Sunday of every month. So therefore the 31st of this month from noon to five, doors open. Okay. Lots of books. And this is to get people to get absorbed in books. I mean, can they walk around uh, and touch them? And 
Yeah, I can touch them and look at them and maybe take them away. That's that's the only marketing I really do. I don't believe book advertising works very well. Mm. Maybe because I've never been a great beneficiary of it, I suppose. Maybe it does. I don't know. But it's never worked for me. Nor have agents worked for me. Nor have publishers worked for me, really. I, I have a running gag, which is I have a list of all the publishers that dropped me. <laughs> and I think I think they're the most dropped publisher in, ever in American literary writing. I mean, there must be a dozen publishers dropped me over the years, which means somebody at that publishing house wanted to work with me, right? But couldn't sell enough copies to get another thing going. So that's all. That's American. It's commercial publishing. What about your passion for books? I mean, books as objects. Do you do you think books yeah. as objects are interesting, or you think? It's just what's inside. Here. <laughs> what's that? You can't swing around and see this stuff. There's an article in the Times, New York Times Sunday section about Metropolitan section about three and a half years ago called the, the Bibliomaniac of Ridgewood. Sort of describe things. But I, I, um, I also like to read. I, I have good eyesight. I can read all day. I love to take, take my book out in the sunshine all summer and, and read. And, and I have wonderful, wonderful white marks on my body from where because I read, <laughs> the sun can't get to those certain places on my body when I read out in the sunshine. Um, but I love reading. I love reading. Always have. I'm sorry. Always have since since college. And do you think that book books or 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 writing is the best way for people to absorb stories, or do you think that? Well, well no, you yeah. talked about visual, right? You ask a good question. I certainly think books are, are the best repository of wisdom. As for stories, I, I, I don't know. I just, again, my, my feeling for Hollywood movies is so limited that I really can't deal with that question. I can't claim to represent other people. Mm. Do you like how, do you think stories are better Hollywood movies, Andrew? When done properly. When done properly, he says. He's a, he's a Stephen King reader, uh, particularly. Ah, okay. Um, well, I, I can't answer the question. <laughs> what, about, uh, audio, what about audio? Yeah, what about audio? What's that? Audio stories? Yeah, audio uh, stories, radio. I, I certainly listen to a lot of, of radio. Um, I listen to, to storytellers on radio, not much anymore. Is Joe Frank still doing his thing? I'm not quite sure. I remember liking it a lot uh, I, on public radio. He would come out of Los Angeles, I suppose. Uh -huh. um, I, I, don't, I don't do that much anymore. I, I certainly remember downloading from Audible as a sample Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, but I've never, I've never really heard it. It's probably mm -hmm. in my computer somewhere. I know people who who drive cars, which I don't do, love to put stories on on tapes and on their on their computer. I don't have a right. car. I suppose I could do it. To, I could do it for take take a thing on the subway and play it. I just, I just don't. Are you I'm able to, to go anywhere now? Sorry? Are you able to go anywhere now? Or are you really housebound? I've been... Several years ago, I was... The, the, the diagnosis of, of mild neuropathy in the feet kicked in and became more severe neuropathy in the feet. So mm. it's very hard for me to move more than a couple blocks. Mm. I, there's a subway outside my door. I, I can get into the subway. It's coming up the stairs at the very end. That's really, really, really difficult. I can go about three or four blocks. I get very exhausted. I don't have any pain. I just get exhausted. I start sweating. <laughs> I, I sort of just last month, I, I was having a doctor's appointment. I got slightly lost getting to the appointment. It was about, you know, I set it up so and I realized it was close to the bus stop. And I come in sweating. 
And that's immediately, that's the first, that's the symptom they go to work on. I tell them, no, no, that's not the symptom I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> but they thought it was a symptom. <laughs> anyway, so uh, it's, it's been very, it's very upsetting on one level. On the other hand, he keeps me home making books. <laughs> right. So how many projects do you think you're working on right now? Uh, I, I don't count. <laughs> Please don't count. <laughs> he says he says 150. He's working on some of them, um, but uh, I have no idea. And the things which obviously are on my computer in dormant, in some dormant form. And every so I come, I would go to my hard disk and say, "Oh, that one. I never finished that one. Let's let's, let's see if I can finish that one." And do or do, and do or don't. But, do you do you feel like it's important for you creatively to? be able to keep switching between projects or do you really focus sure, on sure. something and then finish it? No, I, I, I can leave a project unfinished and come back to it later or, mm -hmm. or, let, it, or let it go. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the previous place, I had different working desks, an art desk and a writing desk. And that, that hasn't been true here. Those much bigger place. And I'm not quite sure why. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have an art desk. I actually made some art last night that I didn't use the art desk for. I can't, I can't tell you. How, how do you feel that New York has has played into your your tastes and your your career? What you've chosen to do? Everything. Mm. Everything. Mm. Um, my taste, my, my my energy, my literacy. I, I I've lived other places briefly. And will not don't want to do so. But I'm a, I'm a New York writer. It's my home. I was born here. I love it here. Yeah. What about the the whole art scene? I mean, I have your book, Artist Soho, which is yeah. a wonderful book. Um, but obviously, you know, the world of New York and the art scene has changed so much. How do you feel? How do you well, feel well, about it today? Well, well, first of all, we're coming out of COVID and the art scene just is sort of disintegrated in COVID. I'm not even sure it's coming back, although I'm not as mobile as I used to be. I have mm -hmm. to ask, I have a neighbor who, who cultivates more closely and he sometimes brings me up to date, but I haven't been, I haven't been able to follow for obvious, but it's just certainly, certainly disintegrated. And also those of us who have unstable incomes really hurt, got hurt badly. That means artists got hurt badly. Mm. And um, so, no, I just get rid of cockroach here. Mm. Okay. Um, what about what about over the last thirty years? How do you feel that that you know, compared to the world of artist Soho, for example? Um, artist Soho peaks, no doubt, in the eighties, right? Um, as such, uh, the the art before COVID, the art scene, the younger artists would gravitate to the L train. Which happens to be where I live now, where I live next time now. So stops along the, the subway that went across 14th Street into um, what's that first neighborhood called? What's the, what's the first neighborhood called uh, on the L train? No, no, on the L train. The, the, with, the, with hipster, the hipster neighborhood. No, the hipster neighborhood. The first stop on the L train. Williamsburg, right? Hipster Williamsburg. And then it goes into Northern Bushwick, and then it briefly comes where I am. Which I say as far as Bushwood, it's officially Ridgewood and down at Broadway Junction. I'm probably the very edge of the. Uh, you know, I might actually, my younger artists might live beyond me now. It wasn't true when I first moved here. Mm -hmm. 
but definitely the L train. And, and you know, the, the kids are told to move here. I have a cousin who's now, I guess now in his 30s, 10 years ago, he was told in Washington, you, if you go to New York and become an artist, you got to live on the L train. Well, he, he didn't even know that I lived on the L train. Do you think that New York is as friendly to the arts as it used to be? Um, you ask a question that I can't deal with. You're talking about you know, friendly to young artists as it used to be. Uh, friendly is not the right, right, the right word. Is, mm. is, it as, is, it, is it, you know, one of the themes I had in the Soho book was young artists go to live among other artists to learn about art. And they did it from Paris or they did someplace. And then they, they might go back to where they came from. The story, obvious story is Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera had to go to Paris to learn how to make better Mexican art. It's not, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way the way the thing works. Um, I, I assume it still works that way for young people. But mm -hmm. I, I, that's all I mean. That's me, my friend. I mean, inspiring is what, what they really should come here. If they can exhibit, great. If they can't, they, they, they learn something. It was, they wouldn't have learned back home. I remember in the days of Soho, you would get people would, would rent their lofts in the summertime to uh, guys who taught in the backwoods, backwoods artists who come to Soho just to soak in New York. And then they would have to go back in September where they came from, where they were teaching. Yeah. Do you have any involvement as a mentor to younger artists right now? N not really, because I... I, I I don't, what I do, what I've done over the years is internships, mm -hmm. but my internships are not hanging around with me. They're, they're doing projects mm. and the projects put their name on. And that's mm -hmm. not better than a letter that says so-and-so is very good and got coffee. I mean, so, so people have, have, have leveraged, have leveraged their career. Sorry. People have leveraged their careers on their work with me. The current film commissioner of New York, uh, Ando Castillo began as an intern and her project was actually proofreading a book that was being reprinted and she found 36 errors and the captions didn't count right. Well, I mean, <laughs> come on, and you, you, that, that's competence. But that was a competence she didn't know she had. So she mm -hmm. developed her competence and then just developed her career and developed her competence. Uh, someone now is making a, uh, a, a, a French edition of Apollinaire's fictions for my avant-garde imprint. And the next step, she might be able to translate an Apollinaire book. So those are the kinds of projects I, I give them to do. And guys who do them develop careers on them. Guys who can't do them, they hope they get a good job someplace else. <laughs> do you feel that literacy, cultural literacy is as valued or as um, put forth by the culture? Yeah, I, I just can't tell you that, I, I'm sorry. I wish I could. I live in a neighborhood where people are not very culturally literate as opposed to where I did before in Soho, but so what? I, mean, I don't know what to make of that. Mm -hmm. I'm a friendly neighbor. They know what I do. They know that, know that I'm a writer, an artist with all the books in the house. And, <laughs> and, and I, I participate in the block parties and say hello to my neighbors. What can I say? I, I can't tell you that. I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer that. There's mm -hmm. certainly been a decline in, in the National Endowment for the Arts decline is just uh, atrocious. I mean, it was very consequential once upon a time. Now it's, now it's been trivial for 20, 30 years. Mm. <laughs> Ain't gonna get better. So if you think about, you know, your, your career as a story, do you have any sense of, of 
a narrative there or yeah overcoming disadvantage would be the first one mm. and that's i remember i've written several autobiographies they're not they're piecemeal autobiographies <laughs> they're not, not continuous narratives but the first one was about becoming a writer second one but overcoming disadvantage i went to i went to um a college didn't have much respect for itself. And a lot of people did not develop because they didn't like respect for themselves as well as Brown University. I know it's hard to believe once I tell you that. Mm. Really? Very few people, uh, very people from at Brown careers like mine. And Brown, I, people back at Brown don't imagine it. They can't imagine it. And I'll tell you even a better story. The two guys who are presidents of colleges and Brown doesn't know they exist. And one of them is president of a major world. Brown doesn't never acknowledge them in the alumni monthly. Let's, let's stop about that one. I mean, that's, that, huh. but Brown was, was, was more disadvantaged, disadvantaged, disadvantageous than you would have guessed. Uh, I, 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 I'll give you a basic statistic. Over the years, which is now 60 year career, I suppose, um, five alumni of Brown have, have supported my work. Three of them have paid me, one more than once. That's out of hundreds of people, hundreds of people. So, mm. it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And that's one disadvantage. Other disadvantages are, I mean, personal, I can't spell, um, can't proofread very well. <laughs> Things like that are personal disadvantages. And being independent um, is certainly was professionally disadvantaged, disadvantageous, not being part of any group or any movements or things that were publicized. Also, my, my, my uh, adventure with commercial publishing was disadvantageous as well. They all dropped me. <laughs> Well, what not, what, not, what convinced you? What convinced you that you needed to be independent? That you didn't want to be part of the system? Well, initially, initially, because I thought it was unemployable. I had a, a bad experience as a bad experience of employment as, a, as in my late teens, and that was probably a myth that I cooked up for myself to keep me working. But I was, I, I believed I was unemployable. Maybe it might be true. I was employed only twice. I, I remember when my when my um, High school class had its 25th year, you're supposed to write in some superlative about yourself. And I put in longest unemployed, 24 and two thirds years. <laughs> or something like that. And I was obviously joking. But anyway. I mean, do you, do you look at people who are caught up in the system and think, you know, they, didn't, they don't have to do it that way? I don't know. I certainly have, or do you I feel that you're, you're yeah, unique? for people who are independent and who built their own own activities and built their own lives. Mm. A lot of respect for people who, do, who did that. Mm. A lot of respect. Well, I can now see my own safe picture above here. I haven't noticed my, my cap is on backwards. I don't, this is the first thing, you know, I don't usually do this kind of thing. So <laughs> tell me, tell me where your podcast is. It's called The Story Talks Back. The Story it's, Talks on, Back. it's on YouTube and you can get it on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. I'll, I'll send you the link when I've edited it and it's ready to go. You know, I, I, I very admire people who do this. I wish I could do it myself. Um, you could do it. Uh, probably not. But how old are you? Me? 59. Yeah. You see, you're a generation younger than I am. And that, that's, there's, there's a computer literacy difference between us. Unless you've worked professionally. Well, I'm, I'm, con I'm considered old hat in... in uh, in uh, modern parlance, you know. Obviously, obviously, but but the difference between people born when you are and people with computer literacy is enormous. The number of people my age who I think are computer literate 
are so few <laughs> that, I mean, we all have this problem. Of, we all have the problem. You know, I got my first computer when I was 40, the, the K-Pro 2. At the time, I had a girlfriend who was 50 years younger who told me how to use it. i tell you even a better story. Um, <laughs> the, I knew the daughter of, uh, the, the, well, it doesn't matter. This old lady I knew who had a PhD in Russian, her husband was a physics professor. I got the computer when he was six years old, they taught him how to use it. <laughs> Right. And of course, he developed a career as a computer engineering. But right. he was six years. How can your six-year-old tell you how to use this thing? <laughs> you know, you, it's very deflating. Very, very deflating. Very deflating. I used to be. I used to. I used to think it was a smart boy. Let me tell you, no more. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are smarter than I am. Oh well, enough. Enough of that. So let's go back to 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 uh, to. Uh, but but I, I do admire podcasters who really developed. One of the people I think, uh, there's a fellow who calls himself, who, who broadcasts as Stixtenhammer. Larry Stixtenhammer, yeah. And he also, but he really makes his money as, as a self-publisher on Amazon of occult texts that he edits under the name, his real name of Tarl Warwick. And I'm sorry, really impressed by him. I guess he's 32, 33, but I've been doing it for 12 years. Sorry, when he was in college. Uh -huh. If I were, if I were, if I were his age, I wish I were so smart. <laughs> and I would how to make a biz, how to make a biz, how to make a culture biz. I really admire such people. People are employed. I, you know, I guess I wish I had a pension now. I wish I had a pension. Lack of lack of a pension is, is going to be very, very uh, going to do me in sometime soon. Mm. So I hope not. Well, it will, it will, it will. I just, you know, I, I, the question is, will we live long enough for it to, to, to be doomed? <laughs> the answer is probably yes. <laughs> Except for my feet, I don't have any medical problems, so. Well, I mean, as you, if you look back across your career, do you have a sense that you've done the things that you wanted to do or that you've... Oh, it's more that I did things I didn't, I didn't imagine my doing. I never imagined I would make art. I never imagined that I would do creative writing. That was not part of the original scheme. The hmm. scheme was just write articles and be a critic in the tradition of Edmund Wilson, I suppose, or somebody like that. No, no, my, my, my life has been discovering things I didn't know, I didn't plan to do. And that has to do, I think, with being free, with being independent. So if you've fallen into any kind of, any kind of, of situation immediately becomes constraining or confining, not constraint, confining, yeah. And what, I mean, do you have any advice that you would give to people who were interested in pursuing that same path? Internship with me. <laughs> I wish I did it when I was young. I would have saved a lot of, a lot of steps and that people like me who, who give you something to do that would develop your competence rather than just help in the office for one thing. Um, Uh, I think another advice I give to people in general, in, in, especially in the arts, is to, um, is to develop what's unique to yourself with your own eccentricity, whether it be, in my case, my, my memory, um, other cases, just they're insufficiently with language or something like that. Don't be ashamed of it. Develop it. Work it. Make it, make it, make it, make it, make it special to you. I, I, don't, I don't have those kinds of students anymore. I do have... Uh, I, I do remember when I taught, 
and I've taught a few times and I've, I've had, I think 15% of my students have published or exhibited, which is a very hard, very high percentage, is the, 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 the challenge was to do something that's unlike anything you or I've ever seen before. And I remember when I did that at the University of Texas, two thirds of three quarters of the class disappeared <laughs> <laughs> to be replaced by other people <laughs> because the remaining quarter told the other people, told, told other people what, what, what this class was going to be about. This was not going to be, you know, you, know, you show your manuscripts that you've been squirreling away all these years uh, in, the, in the writing course, or the, I guess it was called a writing course. So in that sense, I push people. And, that's also true in internships. You put push people to where they haven't, where they haven't been, where they continue to be as their own business, but push people to where they haven't been. Have I answered your question? I don't think I answered your question. Yes, you did. I did. Okay. okay. <laughs> it was great speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Bye. Andrew, for helping. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Andrew, for helping. Yes. <laughs> Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.